Tonight, if you turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 11, and a study that I've entitled, The Call for Repentance. And I want to share with you that most people don't like the word repent or repentance. It's kind of an unpopular word in our world, amen? It's one of those things, people like grace and they like mercy and they're pretty good with bless me and provide for me and Lord rain down blessings on me and we're, we're good with that. Can I, and sneezing, we're good with sneezing. Can I say to you something maybe a little hard to hear? That God necessitates mandates and absolutely requires repentance from his people. It's not an option. You don't get to say, well, I want the goodness, but I don't want to repent. It does not work that way. You will never have the blessings of God without repenting from your sin. God may, because he's nice, he's good, he's kind, he may give you some circumstantial blessings, in spite of wickedness that may be in your life. But if you want God's best, you absolutely must get rid of the junk. Colossians chapter 3 puts that picture out there for us of putting off the old man and putting on the new. Putting off of saying, God, I'm sorry that I was going this way. I'm not just sorry I got caught, but I'm so sorry that I'm going to change my way. And the word repent or repentance means a complete change and turnaround. It's to go the other way. And so tonight as we begin to wind towards the climax of the book of Joel, there's only three chapters here. As we look, as we've seen a locust plague, as we've seen the Assyrian invasion, as now that's in view as we reach the middle portion of chapter 2, we're going to see as as the day of the Lord comes into a very clear view, speaking of the future tense, uh, that the Lord in fact is going to ask the people of Israel, the children of Israel, the children of God, His precious people, to do the one thing, that they must do in order to be saved, in order to be spared, and that's to repent. I think that when we look at the world around us, when we realize where we are, uh, we ought to be, as Romans 13 declares, and we'll get there in a moment, because the hour is at hand. I don't know how much time we have, but I know we're close. I know we're near. And looking at if our country is the best the world has to offer with regard to godliness and contentment being great gain, if our country is the one country that you can point out and say, hey, that's a Christian nation, if our country represents the best that Christendom has to offer, and it does, frankly, there's not another nation on earth that you could point out and say, hey, they're walking uh, the walk more than we are, and we are pathetically going the wrong direction right now. Um, make sure you're paying attention tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that that simple act of repentance is met by your grace and your mercy, your unending love. And so, Lord, we know that as we commit our way to you and honor you with our lives, as we do, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, 
that we would indeed make ourselves a living sacrifice, Lord, holy and acceptable to you, which is a reasonable service. As we do that, we know that your eye is on your kids. Lord, that you have always spared the remnant, that you've taken care of the righteous and the just. And so, God, uh, we have no fear about what lies in the future. But, God, we ought to be very busy because of what the future holds. And so, Lord, bless us tonight as we study. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 11 here in Joel 2. For the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. Now remember, this is, a, this is referring to uh, those invasions, and really you could look at all of them, whether it was the Assyrian invasion or the Babylonian invasion or the Romans that would follow the Greeks. All of them were a type of what is still yet to come at that day of the Lord. But Joel is giving them a stern warning. He's saying, look, here's what you saw when the locusts came. Here's what you're seeing when the Assyrians come. And here's what you're going to see at a later date. And if you recognize that God is in all three spaces that we would call our time at once. God has been God in the past. God is God in the present. And God will be God in the future. That's why his name is Yahweh. It means I am that I am. It means whatever you need, I am that. Whether you needed it in the past or you need it in the present or you need it in the future, God is sufficient for all those things. That same God, crying out through the prophet, says this, For his camp is very great, for the strong one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And as we studied before, it is both great and... And it is terrible. It is great for us who love the Lord. Amen? I'm looking forward to the day of the Lord. I'm not looking forward to the things that will happen to those who don't know the Lord. But I myself am looking forward to the day of the Lord because it's a promise to me. It's a promise to you. Uh, We're not going to see the wrath of God. He's been very clear on that. And so for us, it's great. I, I am looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm looking forward to the Bema Seat of Christ. I'm looking forward to meeting Jesus. I'm looking forward to talking to the apostles. I am looking forward to the great day of the Lord. But it is also very terrible. And the reason that the prophet now goes on to focus in on the latter part of that statement, it is great and it is terrible, and now he focuses in on on the terrible part, and he says, who can endure it? Well, there's an answer to that question, and we'll get there in a moment. Actually, it's relatively simple. And so he begins to lay this out, and he says, Now, therefore, says the Lord. He's going to answer the question at that time. And can I remind you that the question remains answered the same way today? Who can endure it? Well, the way you endure it is to not go through it. The way you endure it is to dedicate yourself to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords. Notice what he says. Turn to me with all your heart. You notice what's missing there? doesn't say turn to me with all of your works. doesn't say turn to me with all of your intellect. It doesn't say turn to me and write a bunch more books. It doesn't say, turn to me and make sure you build me some big buildings. It says, turn to me with the one thing that has been the object of God's 
affection forever, and that's your heart. My heart, the world's heart, people's hearts, and especially His people's heart. Turn to me with all your heart. Remember who He's prophesying to with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Please note the beginning of verse 13. So rend your heart, not your garments. God couldn't care less about our shows. He's not impressed with our sackcloth and ashes. He's, he could not care less about all the pontification about how sorry we are if it doesn't reach our hearts. If it's external, not fooling God. He says, turn to me with your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. And then he gives God's character. And can I tell you that God's character hasn't changed. He's still the same today that he was yesterday. And he will be today and forever. And not will he change ever. He, he hasn't changed one iota. And so he is still gracious and merciful and slow to anger and great of kindness. And he relents from doing harm. But please note the reason that he relents, because they repent. God relents when we repent. God does not relent if we do not repent. And if you need a vision of that, look at the life of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was mad. He was upset. He didn't like the first plague. He didn't like the flies. But he would not repent. And ultimately, it cost the firstborn of his land their lives. God relents when we repent. Circle it. Underline it. If you want God to get off your case, then turn. If you got issues in your life and you want them to cease, then turn. Repent. And do it with your heart, not just your hands. Because there are a lot of people who are still after their own false gods in their heart. And so he says, and goes on, but who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering, for the Lord your God. He says, who knows? You know who knows? Those who know the Lord. Because we know his character. We know his promises. Amen? Amen? What does God's Word say about us who repent? He says, if you confess, I am faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. That's what he says. He says, if you'll forsake your evil way and turn from your iniquity, I will bless you. That's what his Word says. His Word says, if you will turn this day from your evil and to me, I will spare your land. That's what his Word says. His word says, I will bless those who bless me. But it also says, I will curse those who curse me. So how do we know? By knowing the Word of God. Doing the Word of God. And so now he says to them, blow a trumpet in Zion. At that day and time, 
the trumpet was rather like the email blast of today. Uh, The trumpet would be sounded, and as those in neighboring villages would hear the trumpet, they would sound the trumpet, and it went out. It would literally travel across the land, and it might take some time to do that, but the trumpet would be sounded. It was a day of consecration. It was a fast that was going to be held. They were serious about their business before the Lord. Consecrate a fast and call a sacred assembly. They said, get everybody together. It's time to do business with God. When you're facing the day of the Lord, and every one of us is facing the day of the Lord, people don't like to hear it. I don't like to believe. I have had people tell me to my face, if God is going to judge the earth, then I don't want anything to do with him. And I will look at him and I'll say, if God doesn't judge the earth, then he's not just. Why would you want anything to do do with him if he wasn't just? If he wasn't righteous, if he wasn't holy, then why would you follow him at all? The opposite is actually true. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. And I want you to notice how deep this goes. When there is a national problem, it calls for national repentance. Can I say that to you? When there's a national problem, it calls for national repentance. We got national problems. We're we're deep in the problem category, amen. We're 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 looking at a at a world that I honestly never thought would exist. I really didn't. When I gave my life to Christ, if you would ask me that the world that we're living in today would ever exist, especially our country, would ever be as we are, I would have said you're nuts. I said there's no way. It's ever, nobody's going to allow it to get that far along the road. There won't ever be a time when you'll be able to see pornography on primetime television. It won't ever happen. And yet, you can. There will not ever be a time when there will be a continuous stream of filth that can go into anyone's home, anywhere, anytime, their cell phones. That will never happen. Nobody will ever go. Nobody will go for that. I mean, we're bad, but we're not that bad. And it's here. It's here. And it's not only here. You got people. You have the Christian. I don't know if you followed the story. There's a Christian couple in New Mexico who refused to take photos at a, at a gay wedding. That's going to the Supreme Court. Let me tell you what this was like when I was a in in business. You put up a sign in your window. It said, "No shirt, no shoes, no service." Underneath that, it says, "We reserve the right." To refuse service to anyone for any reason. Did you know that's part of your Constitution? It's the right of free trade. It's guaranteed by the Constitution. You can pick and choose who you want to do business with. And yet, where are we? We've made a mockery of the Lord's Word of His way, and now we're doing things I never thought would happen. How did we get here? Because the nation has turned. And I want you to see this. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing babies. This is nuts. Get your whole family, everybody, don't care how old they are, we need to do business with God. 
and let the bridegroom go out from his chamber. That was unheard of. The bridegroom did not leave his chamber, period. Once the wedding was underway, bridegroom stayed put. This is serious business. Get the bridegroom. The bride from her dressing room, same thing. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep at the porch and the altar. Can I say to you that our world isn't too much into weeping before the altar anymore and grieving over our sin? Matter of fact, we boast about it. That's the way the world is right now. That's the world we live in. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. If you don't think you're wrong, you wouldn't use that language. Amen? I don't ask for somebody to spare me if I'm not wrong. I ask for someone to spare me. I throw myself on the mercy of the court when I'm wrong. Amen? Not when I'm right. I can stand with holy indignation and righteousness if I'm correct. If I'm right, if I've done the right thing. Spare your people, O Lord. And do not give your heritage to reproach. You see the focus here? God gets the blame. God gets the blame. God gets the blame when the church doesn't do what the church is supposed to do. Happened to the nation Israel. Do you know why the Canaanites didn't repent? It's because the Jews gave them a lousy example. Instead of standing strong, instead of being who they'd been called to be, they turned around and did exactly what the Canaanites were doing. And so why would the Canaanites change? They invented it. The Jewish people, supposedly the most righteous people on earth, are doing worse things than they were doing, so we're okay by default. That's why I believe to some degree we've lost our, our moral compass in the world. Because the, the compass has been magnetized. It's just, it's just spinning. There is no true north. It's not pointing towards the Lord. That the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? I have heard that recently in our country. Where's your God? If your God's so big, where's your God? Let's just give up. Let's just quit. Knock it off. I've been saying for years, there's coming a time when I think I think we who occupy the pulpit are going to be in serious jeopardy of going to jail. And, and I do believe that day is, is the bus is driving down the road. Yeah, I'm just going to... There's some guys in there need Jesus anyway. Amen. I'm not really worried about it. Because quite frankly, I know my God... But I know this, evil is being called good, and good is being called evil. So someone with a conscience, and I'll give you, I'll give you a perfect example from our health care issues that we have right now, and I'll try not to make it political. I have a moral objection. I have a moral objection to taking the Affordable Health Care Act money that would come to my family, which for me amounts to 
$1,000 a year that y'all are going to have to pay. That's what it is. I went to the Covered California website, and I can get my insurance, which, by the way, would not be as good as what I currently have, for about $200 less a month than I currently pay. But you all got to pay 1000 I save two. So my premium actually is not cheaper. It's that funky math that we've been teaching in school. Amen? Well, your policy that right now is 820 is going to go to $1,630, but we're going to pay $1,000 of it with your money. I have a moral objection to that. Where are people's conscience? You see, in this day and time, the people had lost their moral objectivity. They were just carried along by every wind that came down the pipe, and they no longer listened to God. And so they said, you go get the kids, the nursing babies, the brides, the grooms, grab everybody. It's time to do business with God. I think we're in the same spot. He goes on to say, and I'm going to get to in a, in a little bit here why I think this is so important. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Why indeed? Has God changed? Has He become less powerful? Has He some, somehow become less of a God because of us? The answer is no. And yet the world's saying so. Why should they? Well, they shouldn't. The world should be going, that's how I want to live my life. For the Lord will be zealous, notice this, for His land. For His land. It's His land. When we get to chapter 3, you're going to see this even more clearly. And pity His people. The Lord will answer His people and say, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied them, and I will no longer make you a reproach among the people, and it all hinges on content. We need to be content in what God's given us. And if we're going to do that, we must be repentant of the things that are not right with God. Have to be. Somebody tells you that they can have a relationship with God and they have no desire for repentance, I tell you that your Bible says they don't know the Lord. Not me. I'm not judging where they're going. The Bible judges where they're going. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says this, down to verse 14. It says, and do this. It doesn't say know this. It says do this. In other words, make it a part of your life, knowing the time. that now it's high time to awake out of your sleep. I think a lot of the church is asleep. I really do. I think the church is just going around doing what everybody else on earth is doing. I don't necessarily blame people for living their lives that way. There, there's a lot of example out there to do that. It's the fault of the church. The church needs to be preaching Christ and Him crucified for the remission of sin. The church needs to be teaching holy living. The church needs to be different than the world. The church needs to stand up for Christ and be counted. The problem is the church. The problem was then the Jews. The Jews had everything you could ask for from God at that time. 
Messiah hadn't come, but they had a lot of privilege. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. What day? The day of the Lord. That's the reference there in Romans chapter 13. And therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. You get the picture? Pretty much what Joel said, isn't it? Get rid of it. Cast it off. Repent. Go the other way. That phrase, cast off, is actually the nautical term. It means to let loose and let go. It means to drop the anchor. Get rid of it. Get out of port. Go sailing. Let us put on the armor of light. The armor of God is the armor of light. Did you know that? The whole purpose of the armor of God is so that we would be protected so that we can then portray the light, to, to be the light to the world. So many people aren't girded up, so all that you're seeing is their flesh. And your flesh doesn't do a very good job of emitting light. Amen? Armor does. Let us walk properly as in the day, not having revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness, not in lust, not in strife, not in envy. You get the picture? In other words, don't live like the heathens do. Don't do what they do. You know what? I'm shocked sometimes when I, when I hear about what the church does. I actually had a, a couple a few years ago that came to me, how come we don't do wine tastings? <laughs> Scratch my head a little bit. And I said, you haven't heard me teach more than once, have you? Why? Because it looks just like the world. It's what the world does. And the church shouldn't be doing what the world does. We ought to be different. When people see us, they ought to know that there's a difference between us and the way we live our lives in Christ and the way they live without Him. Put it off. And put on, notice what it says in verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no, underline the word no if you're there, how much provision for the flesh? Not one bit. So anything that looks like the world is probably not God's perfect plan for the church. Amen? We're supposed to be different. Not one provision for the flesh or to fulfill its lusts. How many Christians walk around in, in virtually the same state? As the church. And frankly, folks, the rapture may well be tonight. We don't know. I don't know if you know. I don't know. Might happen tonight. Might be driving home and, man, my car just be one way to get rid of that puppy. Just whoosh. <laughs> right into the canyon. Hope it doesn't hit any unbelievers on the way down. They'll need Jesus. But Joel's the first prophet to get a glimpse of this. He said, who can abide? And what he's really doing is looking forward. And you know, sometimes we kind of play games with, with the time that we have left, don't we? And I want to be really clear right now. 
Please, in Jesus' name, spend time with your family and enjoy the things that God's given you and take time and not talking about never taking another vacation and wandering, you know, just with your arms crossed and repent. I don't want, if I see any of you downtown with a sandwich board that says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, I will personally come down there and rebuke you. Because chances are everybody's just going to think you're nuts. But you do have an opportunity to tell people that message in a way that they can receive it. Amen? You can let them know the gospel without making it so unpalatable that they don't want to hear the message. How many times does the message get messed up because of the messenger? It's not a problem with the message, it's the messenger. And so Joel was saying, look, this is serious stuff. We live in a serious world. So I was listening to our president yesterday, and, and again, I'm not trying to pick on him. I'm just simply saying he has a globalist view. He literally has a globalist view. He thinks we would do better modeled after Europe. That's not a good thing. If you haven't ever been in Europe, if you've never lived in Europe, let me tell you, it's not a good thing. I've lived in Europe. He has the desire to see us less active in our faith. His own pastor said that. So, as we go that direction, that's not a good thing. Where are all the Jesus freaks? Where are all the people who are unashamed of the gospel? What was happening in this day and time is people really, you know, you you had a list of ten things. God wasn't on there. He wasn't on the first ten. Maybe he got in between there and fifty. But he definitely wasn't the top ten. Well, you know, I'll make it to synagogue today if I can. And so consequently, the voice of the Lord was deafened. When the world starts to unravel for reals, that is a word, I looked it up. Reels can be plural. Not sure if it means the things that film used to come on or not, but it's for reels. When it begins to unwind and unravel, it's going to happen so fast for one simple reason. This is what God said would happen. And once it really starts to unwind... People are going to be staggered at what happens. And because we know what our Bible says, we know what to look for. Now you know why I chose that Romans 13. What time is it? Do you know the time? As we look towards a globalist uh, society, the time is ripe for someone to come on the scene right now. Can you imagine if somebody stepped up on the scene and they had an answer for the world's monetary problems? Because we don't have it, that's for sure. Amen? See, my math says that $2 trillion in debt is still debt. I don't know how that makes it into the plus column. And I'm pretty good with accounting. I think $2 million, $2 billion, $2 trillion in debt is debt. There's no answer for it. Unless you gather the whole world together. And now all of a sudden we just have one big giant kitty. I think that the stage is being set. When you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, which previews the great day of the Lord. 
this giant campaign of Gog and Magog, this consortium of nations that comes against Israel. There's not a nation on earth right now that's in full support of Israel. We're their closest ally, and we're wishy-washy. How much trouble do you think it would be for the Russians to gather together the, Assy the Syrians, the Iranians, the Iraqis, the Jordanians, the Lebanese, the Egyptians, the Arabs from the Sinai Peninsula, Bahrain, all those little tiny countries, Yemen? How tough do you think it would be for them to make a case? Hey, it's just time. I mean, this problem's just gone on forever. It's time to put an end to this. We made a mistake in 1945. It's time to end this. And so we're done. Probably most of the world would actually be for that right now. Because they're sick of hearing about Israel. It's like, well, we don't care. There's 7, 8 million people. Why do we care? You realize that there are, there's more popularity for the Palestinians founded by Yasser Arafat, a known criminal, than there is for the Israelis, the most persecuted people on planet Earth. It's crazy. And so Joel begins to unfold for this. He says, The Lord shall utter his voice before his army. His camp is very great. He is strong. He executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And who can abide? Turn to Revelation 19. Let's continue the theme. And as you look at this, hear it clearly. Now I saw in verse 11, heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. Guess who that is? There's only one faithful and only one true. I am the way and the truth and the life. He is faithful and he is true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And this will come very clearly when we get to chapter 3. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. It says, many diadema, the kingly crown, not the Stephana, the, the princely crown, or the crown of the victor, but the kingly crown. This is the king who is coming to execute judgment. And he's not coming to play. And he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God, who is known as the Word of God. Pretty clear who this is. It's none other than Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Great I Am, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Alpha, the Omega. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white, followed him on white horses. So if you've ever wanted to ride a stallion, a white stallion, you're going to get to do that. Now out of his mouth goes out a sharp sword that he should strike the nations. Who's lined up in Joel chapter 2? God's army against an enemy who is yet to be described. Basically, he's given us a preview of the last days. And he's beginning to make it very clear to us. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Does that sound like he's coming back to, you know, kind of, well, you know, just kind of do your best. When Jesus comes back, there isn't going to be an age of grace anymore. It's going to be a rule of iron. It will be complete righteousness. You will have no options. You will either be for him or against him in totality. Period. And the end of like our president said, period. This is a real period that actually means something. Period. 
And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, for he himself treads out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. That does not sound like a good thing to me. Sounds like a very devastating day. And on his robe and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing on the sun, verse 17 said, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat of the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and those who sit on him, and the flesh of all the people, slave and free, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is describing the battle of Armageddon. Why? We're going to find out when we get to chapter 3. Moved by this sight, Joel is appealing to latter-day Israel. He's saying, God, right now, if you will weep, if you will repent, if you will fast, if you will turn, He will be gracious and He will be merciful. Why is He saying that? Because there will come a day when God will no longer be merciful and He will no longer be gracious. The time will be over at the end of the tribulation. His grace will have finished its course on this earth. And when Jesus comes again, He's coming as a conquering king to defeat sin, to defeat death, and to establish righteousness. And so right now, people have an opportunity to repent. They have an opportunity to receive the mercy of the Lord. And so he urged the priests to make intercession. He urged them to pray. He's telling them, guys, we need to take advantage of this. And notice in verse 18, it says, The Lord is jealous for His land and pities His people. The land is God's land. And the people, the Jewish people, are God's people. And He is jealous for them. When we get to chapter 3, you're, you're going you're gonna to look at it and go, Oh my goodness. It's all because of Israel. Once again, he calls a solemn assembly. He says, Guys, be sincere. You know, it's easy to, to participate in religious ceremony, isn't it? You know, you, you can come to church. You can do whatever you want. You can hang out. You can put on a show. But it's another thing to actually repent. And it's another thing to rend your heart. And he says, rend your heart. Turn to the Lord. God wants to be gracious. He wants to be kind. He wants this prayer that he issues here really in verses 15 through 17. As he says to assemble, he presents two reasons why God should deliver them. Israel's covenant, God's heritage, and the glory of his name before the nations. God keeps his promises. One of the problems with the church is, I think the church isn't quite sold on the idea that God keeps his promises. People are sitting around going, well, you know, I don't know if the battle of Armageddon is ever going to happen. If that's you and you're here tonight, I want to square a few things away with you. Because there are some, there are some radical misconceptions uh, about what lies ahead for us. God, God is going to do exactly what he said he would do. 
And so I want to give you a couple of things because people say, well, you know, I'm just, I don't want to hear about it. I've actually had people in this church ask me to not ever teach on end times prophecy. They've said, don't want to hear about it. And I said, well, I'm sorry. You should probably go to another church. Because I'm going to keep teaching it because a 30-year Bible has it in it. So I'm not going to edit. Well, I need to take out that book. Take out that book. You'd end up with two-thirds of what you currently have. And plus, I would perish and burn in hell, which would not be good. Because it says the very last chapter of this book, Cursed is he who adds to or subtracts from the words of this book. That's what it says. So I'm teaching it cover to cover. And if a third of it has to do with what's coming, not what has happened, not what will happen, not grace, by the way, but judgment, and what lies ahead, then I think we ought to be concerned. Let me give you some misconceptions. Common misconception number one. Since we can't know the day or the hour, remember Jesus said that, right? We can't know the day or the hour. That we shouldn't try and know which generation it is that the Lord's going to return in. We just, you know, bury our heads in the sand and keep on going. That isn't what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we won't know the exact day or the hour, but it says we'll know the times and seasons. We'll know the general time when these things begin to unfold. And our problem is, is that as the world unfolds before us, we ought to be going... Oh, boy. That looks a whole lot like the end times that are described in our Bible. And so what should the church be doing? Preaching Christ, amen? Letting people know that there is a way to escape the wrath of God, and it's coming. And I'm not saying make every message, and we don't make every message in this church about this. Sunday we're in Luke's Gospel. Sweetness of Christ there for sure. But there's another side. And so that first misconception shouldn't try and know. Because every generation has kind of thought, well, you know, the Lord's going to come back. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, verse 33. He said, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When the branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also know that when you see these things, know that it is near. It's at the door. Surely I say to you that no, that generation that sees these things. What things? The culmination of the prophetic Word of God. The totality of it. Not part of it. Not the generation He was speaking to in that day, but the totality of what Scripture says about the very last days. He says to them, Assuredly I say to you that this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So he says there is a last generation. Then you look at the signs and go, man, I'm a lot closer to that last generation than the generation before us. Amen? Misconception number two. Every generation has believed their last generation. The problem with that fallacy and the, the reason that it's so dangerous is it puts you on the sidelines and set in the game. Amen? So now you're going, oh, you know, well, so, well, we're the last generation, but nothing happened to the last, last generation, so why should we care? I can't tell you how many Christians hold that view. Well, you know, I just think it's, maybe it's just hypothetical. Maybe it's theoretical. Maybe it's allegorical. Maybe it's metaphorical. It's oracle something. 
It's got some kind of oracle on the end of it. Metaphorical. You, you, you see, the fallacy is this. Someday, the Lord's going to peek his heads through the clouds. We've been encouraged to have our lamps filled with oil and the wicks trimmed. And whether you're the next to last or the last or you're a hundredth from the last, the net result should be the same. But the reason that you stay busy is because you know that the end is coming. It's unbelievably important that we understand that there is a last day. Do you get this? There is a last day. There is a last person who will accept Jesus Christ before the rise of the Antichrist. you realize that? There's one person out there somewhere in the history of the world that's yet future that's going to come to Christ and the end is going to come. Now, I don't know who that is, but I know this. It's getting harder and harder to find the gospel preached on this earth. It's getting harder and harder to find churches that actually teach God's Word cover to cover. Getting real easy to find churches that will fill your ears with all kinds of good stuff. Your best life now. God wants you to be prosperous. I'm sorry, my Bible says exactly the opposite. That you might, in fact, go through hell while you're on this earth. And, in fact, you might be persecuted. You may even lose your life for the cause of the gospel. And it says that you are to partake in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, does that mean that you guys need to go, oh, man, I'm staying indoors because I'm going to die? No. It means you need to get busy. Every crisis is a potential for the corner to be turned. And so don't be thinking that there's more to follow or that there were none before. You could be in the last generation. Third misconception. These things are just too complicated. Who can know it? You know, we're, we're looking at the book of Joel now. I just tied that to the book of Revelation. We're going to tie it to Zechariah. We're going to tie it to Isaiah. We have already done several of those books. They're all linked together. Is it complicated? Yes. But is it unknowable? Absolutely not. Because if it were unknowable, then God would be a liar. Because he wants you to know what is his good and perfect will. His word declares that plainly. He wants you to know. And so he has a few of us on this earth that sit there and study this stuff until our eyes want to pop out of our heads and we go, oh, that's tied in too. And so you end up with half of the church wandering around speaking metaphorically of all the things that happen in the Bible that appear to be related to the end times. Read the book of Revelation. If that's metaphorical, then I would say you can't trust your Bible. But because it's backed up by the Old Testament prophets, I'm pretty sure it's coming. Matter of fact, I'm 100% sure it's coming. Misconception number four. Emphasizing the end times. And it just bugs me to no end. Causes us to minimize the work for the kingdom. You know, somehow that we'll get that escapist, defeatist mentality. Well, the Lord's coming back, so we'll just all go join a commune. We'll sit down and we'll grow potatoes or something. And, you know, we'll wait until Jesus comes back. When we were in El Cajon First Baptist Church, there's a whole group that left our church, joined this cult, 
and they were building a, a compound out in the area called Hamul. And they literally were selling their... This is in the 70s, the early 70s. Sold their possessions, and they're going to go wait because somebody had figured out that the Lord was coming back before 1976. And they're like, well, we want to be holy. when We're going to be... When our lamps turn, we want to be a spotless bride. They even wore white robes. That's idiotic. That's actually not just sad, it's wrong. Because if they actually had the truth of the gospel, then your obligation is to go share the gospel. You should get busier about your father's business when you know what comes after this. You know, this is all going to work together as a seamless plan at some point in time. The question is, we don't know exactly where we are, but we know how late in the season it is. Number five, teaching about the end times is doom and gloom. It's not doom and gloom. It's the truth. It's the diagnoses for the world. As I shared with you last week, if you, if you got a cancer diagnosis, wouldn't you want the doctor to tell you that you, you have cancer? You would want to know what to do with your last days or possibly how to fight it. It's the same deal with prophecy. We know it hails this earth. There's a guy coming on the scene called the Antichrist who's going to, for three and a half years, look like he is the most wonderful person that's ever walked on planet Earth. He's going to solve problems that no one has ever solved. He's going to bring all the world's religions together. He's going to solve our monetary crisis. And then he's going to put together a government that everybody's happy with. We don't even have a government. Our chamber of commerce fights with itself. Imagine a guy that will actually have success at bringing together all of the world. He's going to get a Nobel Peace Prize. He's going to be announced as the supreme ruler of the entire world. And then all hell is going to break loose because his true colors are going to come out. So it's not doom and gloom. It's what's going to happen. We need to know it. Number six. God's judgments in the book of Revelation uh, will come upon the saints. Family of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says plainly that He has not appointed us, that's Christians, to wrath, but unto salvation. So if the reason that Jesus is coming back is to pour out the wrath of God on this earth, do you think there's any chance that the church is going to be here to receive his wrath? The answer is no. It's crazy. That's silly talk. That's not knowing your God. Your earth is going to be healed. Um, land, the water is all going to be cleansed. Ultimately, we're going to have a thousand years on this earth. After Jesus does what Jesus needs to do with the armies of heaven, it's going to be like Adam and Eve had it you're going to actually get to enjoy the earth as God intended it for a thousand years. Millennial reign of Christ. Read Revelation chapter 19 to 22 and see what happens in those, those final stages. You see, the final misconception is it will all pan out in the end and basically everybody gets saved. That is perhaps the most dangerous fallacy taught by any church. That you don't need to worry about it. It will just all work out. Because God is good. God is good. But God is also just. God is also righteous. God absolutely hates sin and it can't be in His presence. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 
whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and the body in hell. Jesus believed in hell. Jesus preached about hell. Hell is a real place, and God doesn't want anybody to go there. And so he gave us his prophetic word to remind us that you're not going to have forever to make a choice to seek the Lord, to be saved. And so I want to encourage you. Don't get bummed out. Get fired up. Don't look at these, oh man, this is like all this stuff's going to happen in the end. You're supposed to know it so you can keep people from seeing it, being in it. Being near it. That's why Joel was telling them at that time, he says, look guys, we already had the locust plague. The Assyrians are coming. It will get worse. Turn. Repent. Don't go that direction anymore because if you don't repent, God will do what He said He's going to do. And in doing that, He will be perfectly just. He's going to give us these things that I laid out here at the end, we have a certain victory. There's some reasons why we have to understand this. We have confidence in the sovereignty. I have total confidence in the sovereignty of God. He's not going to make any mistakes. There isn't going to be one person in hell who shouldn't be there, and there won't be one person in heaven who didn't choose Jesus. Not one. So if that's God's plan, I think we need to get on board with God's plan. Amen? Continuity. God can't be one thing in the Old Testament and something else in the New. It's not true. That's a fallacy of teaching. God was the same in the Old Testament as He was in the New Testament. And He's the same today. And He's going to stay the same. And what He asked of them then, He asks of us now. The good news is that we can be that by grace and through faith instead of going to a temple service every once a year to the Day of Atonement and having your stuff put away, you can actually have it dealt with permanently now because it's finished. We, we have this fascination. We get a new direction. There's a sense of urgency. And then we have the confidence to actually study God's Word. And I want to encourage you, have the confidence to study the hard parts of God's Word because they make you appreciate the grace that you walk in now and they also cause you to cause to want to cause other people to know the truth. You know, when I walk around and I talk to people, there's a sense of urgency. It's like, man, do you know Jesus? I don't care if they don't like me. It's crazy. I used to think, well, I don't want them to know. I don't want them to think that I'm weird. So I just give them the basic gospel. Do you know Jesus? Well, uh, you know, I went to church once. No, I asked you a question. Do you know Jesus? You get that from knowing what's coming. You don't get that from sitting around thinking you got another three billion years. That there's going to be endless generations and that there is no heaven, there is no hell. It's just all theoretical. It's all allegorical. It's all metaphorical. There is a day when Jesus is coming back. You want to come back with him. You don't want to be here when he gets back. Amen? That's the deal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, Lord, to inspire us and to challenge us. And Lord, yes, these passages can be hard to hear. 
But Lord, they're hard to hear for a reason. They're to excite us and ignite us. Lord, to get us charged up about the day that we live in. Lord, it's to cause us to stand for righteousness because that's the one thing, the Holy Spirit at work in this world that will stave off that that final onslaught from the enemy. And so, Lord, we want to be busy doing what you've called us to do. Lord, bless us, anoint us, use us, make us bold, give us a witness that's pure and clean and good. Lord, use us for your plans, your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.